Hey everybody, it's Wes from Fundamental Games here. I just wanted to preface this one by sending out a very specific thank you to Jamie Stegmeyer for going out of his way and being willing to be a, a participant on my podcast, even though it's only a couple of episodes in and, and not very much for followers yet. Uh, but I think it has some great potential to come and just having someone like Jamie have some belief in it and interest in it can go a long way to kind of justify what this Kickstarter journeys is all about so i do hope you enjoy the episode there's a only a second or two somewhere in the middle where you may hear his voice cut out uh must have just been a connection error on my part uh interviewing via skype but the the 99.9 percent of the podcast goes through loud and clear and there's some really cool points that we cover within so i hope you enjoy this kickstarter journey and uh, if you enjoy guests like this by all means send me a message on fundamental games at icloud.com and you know just let me know what kind of creators you know that are out there that you think i should reach out to and try to get onto the show the more i mean i, I try to reach out and find people all the time but if there's somebody specific you think i'm missing or should try to reach out in a specific way let me know i think the biggest challenge i have is finding out which way to reach which people because some people are accessible on email some people prefer twitter some people like facebook some people you just can't find at all uh, so if you know someone that you'd like to hear about on the show one of their kickstarter successes that you've really uh, been enamored with or enjoyed what they created then by all means let me know and i'll be happy to try to chase them down and see if they have an interest in sharing what happened on their journey all right so enjoy this episode and um, hope to see you subscribe if you aren't already hello and welcome to another episode of kickstarter journeys and a very special one at that. There's only one name that comes up in almost any podcast about crowdfunding, particularly about board games, and that happens to be Jamie Stegmeier of Stonemeyer Games. Today, I'm honored and humbled to have him share some thoughts about his amazing crowdfunding platforms, which helped him build the business that he runs today. It's a bit of a step back through time and some of his Kickstarter learnings. Hi, Jamie, and welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. That was a really nice introduction. I appreciate that. Yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have you, and I'm sure our guests will love to hear what you have to say. But before we get into that, there's um, some things that we can share about your Kickstarter history. Some people may not realize how far back it went. Uh, so when I was doing a bit of research, it was cool to see where you started and where you ended up before you ended up um, running your own business instead. So yeah. in 2011, Jamie ran a Kickstarter with Blank Slate Press with a funding goal of $250 and came in at $305. Uh, Jamie decided not to continue with this, and he might touch on that later, but instead had some inspiration to create a board game and crowdfunded that in 2012. That game was Viticulture, which is still available today, and at the time it raised $66,000 US, so pretty impressive in itself. That was followed up by Euphoria in 2013, Tuscany in 2014, and Between Two Cities after that. But his final Kickstarter was Scythe in 2015, raising $1.8 million from over 22,000 backers. Um, so when you look at Jamie's Kickstarter history, his journey, it came to an impressive $3.2 million and over 38,000 pledges over that span of time. And from there, he divulged and went off to, to build Stonemaier Games as kind of an independent company that went through distributors and through the standard channels. So it's a, an amazing story to tell back then, um, an amazing story to tell now. And just between then and now, it's been five years, Jamie. So 
Uh, you've done a fantastic job on building your own business model, financing it. And actually last year, or 2018, had $9.6 million in sales. And I know you haven't released your 2019 report yet, but I'm sure uh, with the release of Wingspan and with um, uh, not, uh, Tapestry, yeah, yeah uh-huh. I'm sure that's uh, hitting some similar numbers there. So, Jamie, uh, if you were to be brand new to the hobby today, trying to self-publish your first board game and knowing how Kickstarter was then and how it is now, would you still consider Kickstarter as the place to go? Oh, yeah. If I was brand new to the, the hobby and the industry and if I was excited to both be a game designer and someone who is running a game company, because they're two very different things. Um, yes. Yeah, I would, I would definitely use Kickstarter. I think it's an amazing way to 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 raise awareness, to gauge demand, to, to raise funds, to build community. All those things that I still try to do now without Kickstarter, I would uh, I think those are still very relevant on Kickstarter for a new creator. Yeah, absolutely. Then. And uh, I noticed that you've backed almost uh, about 300 games. So do you still buy games on Kickstarter or you just kind of look at it as a way to see what's going on in the hobby? Oh, no. Yeah, I still I still get excited about uh, about games on Kickstarter. I'm fairly discerning now because there are so many quality games on Kickstarter. Uh, my house would be filled with them if I backed everything that I was even a little bit excited about. But uh, yeah, but yeah, I still back them. I would say I back maybe one every two weeks, but uh, on average. Yeah. What about yeah, you? Are you an avid, avid backer as well? Uh, I often back just for just to give some support and kind of see what's happening in a campaign like yourself. You can only fit yeah. so many games in the house and you can only spend so much time between designing games and running a business and playing games. So you kind of have to be very, very choosy which ones you actually go all the way in for. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I found even with the, the I love the, the small pledges, the $1, the $5 pledges just to show support. Um, and Kickstarter now has this system built in where whenever you do that, anyone who follows you on Kickstarter sees that you backed it. And so you are helping a project beyond just a few dollars and beyond your community driven support. You're, you're sharing it with a bunch of different people who may not have otherwise heard of it. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a way to help them advertise without having to do a whole lot on your part. And you can always click the Facebook button to share or the Twitter button to share. And all of a sudden they get uh, an extra, well, in your case, <laughs> thousands of views. In my case, maybe a hundred views. Uh, but yeah. either way, they get visibility to what their Kickstarter is up to. So that's awesome. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so many, many things have changed since you were a Kickstarter creator, but the platform itself is still very similar. So let's take a look at some of your trends and compare it to what's relevant now, and, and maybe you can give us some insight there. So first off, in your Kickstarters, you began with an intense amount of pledge levels. A Viticulture, your first game, had 21. Euphoria had 15. Tuscany had 8. And Scythe had 5. So what did you learn over time about Kickstarter pledge options with your games? And, you know, kind of why did they reduce and how do you feel about them now? <laughs> yeah, well, I learned that 21 is too many, way too many. <laughs> I think uh, back then when I launched Kickstarter, I was largely um, like I, I, I did my research pretty well uh, and for, for the time where I, I followed a bunch of other projects. I backed them. I, I looked at them and I saw what did well, what didn't do well. And at the time, the types of things that were doing well were early bird rewards, exclusives and lots of different pledge levels, including lots of custom pledge levels. And so I thought, okay, well, I want to do all these things that all these other successful creators are doing. And I yeah. packed them all into one project. But I've learned since then, especially for those three things, that having 21 pledge levels is really overwhelming. You can give someone analysis paralysis when they see that many options. Right. Um, 
the, the, and uh, say early bird. I have different reasons for not liking early bird exclusives. I just don't. I like to include people, not exclude people. So for various like philosophical and personal reasons, I've moved away from those things over time. Yeah. Yeah, and I've seen that there's games now that just offer, you know, a dollar pledge that Kickstarter puts in, and some some of them even run with just a single pledge or two pledge levels, and they've still found success. So oh, uh, yeah. I guess it really, totally. really depends what your game has to offer. Yeah, yeah. All right, and I took a few minutes to watch each of your Kickstarter videos. Uh, if anyone wants to see something really different, take a look at that <laughs> video. Hey, Jamie, have you have you looked at that in the past few years? <laughs> you know, I I tried to watch it recently with my girlfriend because she has never seen it. I met her well after I filmed that, um, yeah. and I couldn't do it for some reason. Kickstarter would not let me watch it, but I need to try. Maybe I had like an ad blocker up or something. So it has been a while. It is a play on the movie trailer for the a movie called Sideways. Have you seen Sideways, Wes? Yeah, I did. Uh, Once upon a time with Paul Giamatti. Yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, it's a, it's a. I really enjoyed the movie, and there's a. Tra- so I'd recommend if anyone wants to watch that video, watch the sideways movie trailer, and then watch that video, and you'll get some <laughs> jokes. But uh, even as I'm saying this, like if it takes you watching a specific movie trailer for a small indie <laughs> film to get the jokes in a, in a uh, Kickstarter video, that may not be the greatest idea. But at the time, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, and at the time, I mean, uh, Kickstarter was a lot newer, and just having a fresh approach may have helped you. I mean, it was a very different approach from a board game pro- promotional video. And yeah. um, for those of you who have a few minutes, uh, it's not going to be what you expect, but it would be very cool <laughs> to see how Jamie actually started. So that's yeah. awesome. Now, that being said, Jamie, I noticed that your final Kickstarter game was the only one with a movie-like trailer, the kind of video yeah. that made you feel the the ambience and the theme. What made you to decide to go to that kind of promotion compared to the actual gameplay videos that you used for each of your other games? Well, I, I kind of honed what I wanted a video to be at that point. I wanted it to be short. I wanted it to capture someone's imagination almost right away, ideally. Um, these are things I was trying. I'm, I'm not saying I necessarily accomplish these things. And I wanted it to highlight a few of the main hooks of the game, like the component hook, a few mechanical hooks. Tell people, give people a taste of what the game is um, in a very short time frame and in a very polished way. Because at that point, uh, especially compared to the Viticulture time, I had more of a budget. I could I could pay someone to make a more polished video, whereas the Viticulture video, I, I just did it myself on on an iPad and uh, in a. I think I used my phone to record it, or maybe the that iPad wasn't, to record that it. That wasn't on a movie set. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no, not on a movie. <laughs> what kind of videos do you feel most inclined to watch and click on now? Because if you're watching Kickstarter, you see some of the ones that come out there. Do you like the gameplays? Do you like the theme ones? Um, honestly, my preferred style of video is the side, the style, the one that that immerses you in the theme but gets right to the gameplay pretty quickly. So there are some videos that are much more about the theme, like the whole video is telling a story. And that's fine, but then I'm like, okay, well, what is the game about? And there are other yep. videos that are that jump right to the gameplay, and that's that's fine. Like that's that's really the the reason that will end up making me back the game. But I also want to feel a little bit in, in the game. So the size formula is one that I really that does a per, that does personally appeal to me, um, including the length too. If a video is five minutes long, I'm I'm more likely to to only watch a few seconds of it, than, or yeah. not even watch it at all compared to a shorter video. Have you, what's your experience with that, Wes, Wes when, you, uh, when you see different videos on Friday pages? 
Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. And then in some cases, having the optional subtitles can go a long way because often I'll oh, yeah. might browse something while I'm in public or uh, um, don't have the opportunity to have audio. And I, mm. I personally have I've only done one Kickstarter with words, but I found the ones that do combine words with um, video, I, I tend to pay more attention to. Uh, but regardless of the time, I agree. I think two minutes or less, even a minute and a half, it might be pushing it. And if you can combine... You know, you want to punch in with that theme, but then you want to layer in the gameplay because if you don't like the game, the theme doesn't really matter. I really like that you said that. That's something that I that occurred to me recently on Facebook, where I my I, I don't want to keep bringing up my girlfriend, but my girlfriend every now and then will scroll on Facebook and I'll look over to see what she's looking at, and she'll be watching a video on Facebook in silence because the videos yes. on Facebook are structured around uh, words, like you said, and also like. They tell the story without really needing sound. I, I can't even really describe it, but you, you you know what I'm talking about. I think people listening can kind of know what I'm talking about. And I wonder if that should be the direction that more Kickstarter videos are headed, where the, the audio is not needed at all based on how you present the story. Yeah, and, um, so. and then you can always include a more audio version in the campaign itself, because once exactly. you've got them looking at it, then they're going to want to invest that time afterwards. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I might, I might write a blog post about that soon. Yeah. All right. And uh, many of your games, you offered a way for backers to personalize their games or influence your personal design. For example, you had backers that were able to get featured on cards. You had people helping decide the game story, like Euphoria's Apocalypse Origins. Did you find personalization and that kind of involvement helped your funding results overall, or did it just keep a certain percentage of people engaged? I think more the latter, but I think that can also be helpful. Um, I, so the, the latter being that I think it helped keep people engaged, especially the Euphoria one. The Euphoria one was a lot of fun. Uh, people were, seemed very engaged in that, where they were kind of voting on different apocalyptic scenarios um, and then helping me craft the story. And eventually I, I crafted the final story, but they, they helped through a series of votes to do that. So it kept them engaged. But I think keeping backers engaged is really important, honestly. Uh, it, it, uh, the, the more the backers are excited and, and engaged, like the more the current backers are excited and engaged in a project, I think the more likely they are to talk about it with their friends, um, which is the nice style of organic marketing that I that I like. That said, yeah, exactly. uh, for for custom stuff, there there is a line that I ended up drawing after um, I think it was after Tuscany, maybe even before Tuscany, where I uh, yeah I think it was after Tuscany because I'd gotten some custom art. From I let people pay for custom art on the cards, um, yeah. on the Mama and Papa cards, and in, in what is now Viticulture, it was Tuscany at, at first. And what I realized afterward is that uh, it, it didn't give me, if I was letting people pay for that, it, uh, it didn't give me the flexibility or much flexibility to offer diversity in that art, as in different ages, different races, different. Uh, I was able to split it by gender because it was Mamas and Papas. But, uh, right. but other types of diversity was very limited there. So I really moved away from that type of customization after that so that I could I could control the diversity rather than the people who wanted to pay for custom art. Yeah, you definitely want to retain some kind of creative control. Otherwise, uh, yeah. you may cause problems for the other backers. And one of the things that I always worry about when it comes to customization is if you do a voting system, how does the people who chose the other way feel when their vote didn't get chosen? I always wonder... That impacts it at all. I, I don't think it results in dropped backers, but just kind of the good versus bad feelings if you're the you're the winning vote or not. 
Yeah, I think there's yeah, that's well said. I think there's pros and cons to it because I think on one side it does show sometimes like the vocal minority is the minority and having a vote can show them, hey, other people feel differently than you, which yeah. is something that I hope people understand. But sometimes people don't get that. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you're right. Like if you have a vote deciding a crucial element of a game um, and you are on one side of it, uh, I could I could see someone feeling feeling pretty bad about that. And I guess, but the nice thing about Kickstarter is that they have the choice then to cancel. So if it's something that really go, flies in the face of something that they felt was important about the game, they have the right to cancel and hopefully do so gracefully. Yeah, exactly. Without uh, causing any stir in the comments. <laughs> yeah. the comments are, are a huge part of campaigns, right? So throughout your game campaigns, actually, you had over, if you go over the course of the years, you had over 40,000 comments, not even including comments within the many, many updates that you provide. So when yeah. I was looking through those, at least a third of them are your personal responses to backers. And you you are a very committed person when it comes to your customer and your viewer engagement. And that's not just back in Kickstarter. Even now, if you look through your YouTube videos, if you look through your um, blog, anytime somebody says anything with your name linked to it, and even if they don't, you're very, very good at responding. So how do you feel that did to develop your early reputation when you were kind of getting your name out there at the beginning? And how do you feel it's still helping you now? Well, in Kickstarter in particular, uh, a lot of it is about, well, I was doing it because I enjoyed it. But I think one of the side effects of it or one of the results is that it established trust. It showed people that I, I was I was going to be part of the journey with them, that I was listening to them. And... Um, and that I was going to be there. I was going to be there to answer questions, not just during the project, but after the project and for months and years to come. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that is a, for me, a Kickstarter, is, a lot of it is about establishing trust. And I think that's one big way to do it. And one way to lose trust is to not respond to questions or, or to ignore statements and questions. So I think it it, it can uh, help you or hurt you, depending on how you engage with that. Um, I did have to learn a lot over, over particularly as, as uh, my projects grew, of uh, how to say no at the right time and in polite ways, how to right. uh, watch out for my own um, emotional state, because sometimes when things get pretty negative, that can that can impact me pretty negatively as well and impact the way that I respond. So uh, it took a, took a lot of learning there to figure figure out how uh, how I could best engage once I was getting up to, you know, 5,000, 10,000 backers. Yeah, I can't imagine that scale yet. I mean, I have aspirations to move to that state at some point. And I always wonder, I have to catch myself sometimes, because when you're live on Kickstarter, and when, and not even on Kickstarter, but on Facebook or social media of any kind, uh, you have to remember where you are. So I could be at work and look at something. I'm like, I really want to answer this now. But if I do, am I going to give the appropriate response? Like, did I, did I actually think about the question? Are you ever in that state where you're busy with family, but you really want to answer something? Or do you have set times that you go in and answer things now? Yeah, that's a great, I, I love that you think about that, that you think about where you are, who you're with, uh, what you're prioritizing at that time. Um, I try hard, I try to do that. Um, I, and I, the, the most common way that I think about it now is, uh, sometimes in the evenings, I, I, I am curious about what people are talking about online, but I know, especially if there's something, maybe I posted a controversial blog post or something like that, right, um, right. or potentially controversial blog post. And so I'm curious what they're saying, but I know that if I look at it at that time, I, the best I can do is maybe write a quick answer on my phone. 
rather than really thinking about it and giving it the, the attention that it deserves. So sometimes then rather than even looking at it, I'll wait until the morning until I, I am full at my computer, fully focused and, and ready to work on it. And so I, I, I'm tr- I try to be aware of that as you as you just described. Like, is this a good time for me to be good to you, basically? Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said, there are controversial topics. And the bigger you grow in scale, the more publicized you become, the more chance you're going to get good criticism, but also negative criticisms. And I'm sure mm-hmm. um, we've seen in the past, um, every creator has those opportunities. So it's one of the most nerve wracking things for a creator to share their creation and hope to get good reviews and hope to get good feedback. Um, what is your perspective on responding to good feedback versus responding to negative feedback where they are uh, belittling your game or your concepts or your ideals? Yeah, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's tough. I, I don't know. It's, both ways it's tough because I, I don't want to only hear positive things and I don't want to only hear and focus on negative things. Um, if someone goes out of the way, out of their way to, to, uh, appreciate a, a, something very specific about a game or customer service or something like that, I try to show them some level of acknowledgement that I've heard them. Um, yeah. with the negative stuff, uh, I try to delineate between, um, and, and, and try to delineate between uh, publicly posted feedback that is uh, that is hateful versus that which is comes from a place of passion and a desire to improve, basically constructive criticism versus hateful criticism. Uh, I, I think there are some people who just try to post stuff that they hate uh, and and stuff that they they. I don't know, this is a very small number of people, but I, I think that does happen. Whereas a lot of it, you know, people who are passionate about a project or a product, they're excited about a game, and they found something that impeded their passion a little bit, and they want to talk about it. And that's the kind of stuff that I really want to hear, and I have to try to delineate between the two and, and focus on that. Because focusing on someone who just wants to create chaos uh, or, or hate on stuff is not productive, in, in my opinion, not productive for me. So I try to, to delineate between those two. Yeah, that's a, a great way to differentiate them. So for anybody listening, I think that is an absolutely fantastic piece of advice because you can't ignore the masses, you can't ignore the comments, but you can put just small responses to the ones that you can tell are just probing and just trying to get a bad response. And then you can actually yeah. put thought and time into those ones that really want to know and, like you said, have that passion. So I love how you worded that. And obviously it's worked well for your business. Um, I mean, speaking aside to Kickstarter, the, the sheer success of Wingspan and of Tapestry and the fact that you've got people that are, are buying it, you know, by the thousands. And then you've got a couple of reviewers who may say, oh, I wish it did this or it doesn't do what I thought it would do. Uh, you're still appealing to the greater public. And I think that's key to your success. So uh, you've been able to listen to feedback, respond to it and adjust, but still stay true to what you and your company want. Yeah, I, I, I try. I, I try my best. And I, I really do appreciate the people out there who are willing to to share their their constructive criticisms, both what they like and dislike, because it's it's really important for me to hear what people want us to change. And it's also for, important for me to hear what people want us to keep doing so that we keep actually doing it. Uh, so, that, yeah, both of those things are important. I appreciate anyone who's 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 sharing that type of stuff online. Yeah. And one of the ways you did that early on, and I know you still do it now. We don't see it as much, but back then you would um, always have a certain amount of people playtesting your game, whether it's blind playtest or or otherwise. What do you feel the value is in that? And kind of what scale would you expect a new creator? You know, would, it, would you expect them to 
have a game blind play tested with a group of 10 or uh, be spending hundreds hundreds of copies of prototypes across the, the nation? What do you think is ideal for a new creator to try to get their play testing done? Well, uh, let me describe our current method, which is, isn't all that dissimilar from, from past methods um, that we've used. And I'll, I'll, then I'll, I'll answer your question. Our, our, our current method is that um, I put together digital files for people to play test. And I have a group of playtesters that I have um, that have playtested, or most of them have playtested our games in the past. And they've also answered a very specific test that I've given to playtesters to see how good they are at actually giving feedback. Because okay. people uh, people are, you know, it's a skill to have to be able to, to convey feedback. Similar to what we were just talking about with constructive, constructive criticism. And so I, I put together digital files and I send out waves of playtesting. So like for the Tapestry expansion right now that I'm working on, um, currently we're in the fifth wave of blind playtesting where each time I've, I've sent out uh, updated digital files to a set of between five and 10 groups of people who then need to play it three times within a three week period. And so I've done that. We're on the, the fifth iteration of that. Um, and this system, it works pretty well for me. I, I like the way that we get feedback. I like the playtesters, and and I got unlike a little bit of what you said there. I'm not actually putting together the prototypes and mailing them around the world because uh, that is a lot of work, and yeah, it's just easier for me to send the digital files. Yeah, I agree. So uh, that that print and play is kind of the uh, term used for it is a fantastic way because it's yeah. very little expense to you, but uh, somebody's actually going to spend the time to print it. Chances are they're going to play it and get you that feedback that you want. So I like how you. You're exactly. really um, protective of doing a physical prototype and rely on your customers or your uh, um, clients to do that, right? I do. And and just to also be clear there, I do compensate them for that. Because like you said, there's an expense of, of printing it out. There's an expense of getting together with a group of people. Maybe you're ordering pizza, you're providing snacks. Um, yeah. So I... I, I uh, I compensate them for for their time and their and their talent there too, um, in terms of mo- money. I'm giving I'm giving them money. <laughs> I think some people <laughs> give them like games and whatnot, and that's fine too. I basically give them either store credit or a PayPal payment. Um, and I guess to get back to your original question, all that works so well for us that I, it is a system that I generally do recommend to other people. The one variant on it that some uh, designers do is that they have their blind playtesters. Uh, videotape their play sessions and then they go back and watch those play sessions. I've used that a little bit. Matt Leacock of Pandemic Fame is kind of famous for using that method. I haven't been able to get, uh, I think, as good of uh, uh, data from that as I think Matt has. So I haven't done it all that much, but uh, that is a method that some people use as well. Excellent. Yeah, there was actually a, a gentleman I was talking to. He's launching a Kickstarter in spring called Token Terrors. But what he did is he um, went to a local game shop and talked to the owner and kind of arranged like a three-hour playtest session and just said, I'll pay for pizza and I'll pay for drinks. Come play my game. And he said that's the best t- turnout he's ever had. So if you can't do it on a grand scale, like a, a company like Stonemeyer Games, but you still want that similar concept of paid playtesting, that's kind of a, a down-home way to do it. I thought that was a cool idea. Yeah, I love that. And I love that he chose a local game store to do it. So that way he's bringing people into a shop. I, can, I can't see any game store owner saying no to that. That's great. Yeah. Uh, all right. And one of the things I wanted to touch base on, Jamie, is you have a fantastic book that you came out with back in 2015 called A Crowdfunder's Strategy Guide. This book is still relevant. It's actually still being sold on Amazon. 
And I was curious, uh, do you still get a lot of requests for it? Do you see a lot of sales out of it? And do you, do you have any con or ideas to update that one in the future? Yeah, you know, I uh, this past year, a few months ago, I went back and kind of flipped through it to see because I wanted to kind of see if it needed a new edition. But the book is so focused on like there is very specific stuff um, about Kickstarter and very specific tactics and strategies, but a, most of them still apply. And a lot of it is about almost philosophical dip, uh, approaches to, to entrepreneurship and crowdfunding, like focusing on your backers rather than your own personal dream, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So I think it applies somewhat universally and, and timelessly as long as Kickstarter is a thing. So I don't have any current plans of, of revising it. As for the sales, I don't really know, to be honest. Like my, my literary agent contacts me every six months and sends me a check. Um, it, it pales in comparison to our game sales. But so I don't it's not about the money for that. But it is nice to get a little surprise check every now and then. But I, I, I do I, I do see people post about it on Instagram from time to time or, or Facebook. And so I, I love that people are still discovering it. And hopefully it's adding value to, to their Kickstarter creative experience. That's great. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, like I said, yeah, if anybody wants to see what it's about, it's still available online. Do you know, is there a digital version as well? I actually didn't look into that. There is. I think there's I think there's actually an audio version, a digital version, like a Kindle version and uh, and uh, paperback versions. Um, yeah. Yeah. The and for, yeah. What's that? I, I said the world is changing, so it's going <laughs> to yeah. have those formats. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, you have shared some really great information about your Kickstarter journeys, Jamie, and you've given so much to the board game industry, both for information and for fun, successful games. Uh, I really love what you did with Scythe to kind of finish off your Kickstarter adventure there. Maybe as we wrap up, can you touch base on what made you decide from Scythe? And I know you've said this in other podcasts, but I've got a new listener group here. What made yeah. you decide that that was the last Kickstarter game and how did you feel comfortable um, sustaining yourself financially going forward from there? Well, so, so Scythe funded in November of 2015, and it, it did it did very well on, on Kickstarter. And um, it uh, everything kind of went to plan with it. We, we uh, shipped it to some backers as early as two months earlier than we originally projected. Um, it's, it's, I know this is highly subjective, but the game, the game was very well received. It, it was a very, backers got, I think, what they hoped they were going to get, and and many of them got, their expectations were exceeded in terms of gameplay, things like that. So basically, uh, things went very well, and yet, uh, there were things that arose behind the scenes, and even up front, that, uh, that made me want to move away from Kickstarter. One of them being that one of our fulfillment centers, the one in Europe, uh, completely dropped the ball in packaging the game well. And it is a small miracle that our European backers, and there were thousands of them, actually yeah. received pristine versions of their game. And so that was a big red red flag to me where I was like, okay, if I'm asking these people to give me their money six to eight months in advance, and then uh, I work with a shipping company that I've already worked with in the past, and they've done a great job, and then suddenly they t turn around and do a terrible job, um, that's hundreds of thousands of, of dollars at risk. Um, and, and my company's reputation at risk, really. So that was a big thing. There was also, uh, with the fulfillment, so I, I was fulfilling to U.S. backers. This particularly happened in the U.S. I was fulfilling to U.S. backers about a month and a half early. 
And I went on uh, a, a brief vacation, a family reunion. And while I was there, there was a massive thread on BoardGameGeek about uh, backers complaining that their copies weren't shipped before other backers in the U.S. Um, so these are U.S. backers saying, why isn't my copy being shipped before this other backer in the U.S.? And I... I was baffled and bewildered by the the vitriol in this thread from many, many backers, uh, given that I was delivering the game to them so much earlier than originally projected. Like it wasn't even like most projects don't even deliver on time. I was delivering early and they were complaining that they were they weren't getting the game a week before another backer. Yeah. And it there was this feeling of disillusionment to me where I was like, OK, we've done everything we possibly could. We're delivering early. And yet you're finding a way to to find something negative from this experience. And it really made me question um, if I wanted to uh, even continue running the company, honestly, at that point. But I, I realized it was more about something that happens with Kickstarter. When backers are really excited about something, it, it can manifest in these weird ways that impact them and impact me in, in uh, ways that I didn't I just didn't like. I was very uncomfortable with it. Um, yeah. So that was a. Those are two of the reasons. Uh, yeah. What, what do you think? You you probably read some of the other reasons. If there's anything that you wanted to highlight, or, or I'd love to hear your thoughts about that too, Wes. No, I mean, uh, I think uh, in terms of that that negative feedback, that mob mentality can really take yeah. a hold. You look through even life history, and there's all kinds of stories of where something that absolutely wasn't true led to a link to a mob and um, decisions that shouldn't have been made. So. I can see where you're coming from with that. And and by separating yourself from that direct communication with backers and kind of putting it through distribution and through retail outlets or online sales, you were able to distance yourself, but still stay tuned with backers. And, and you did that in a very cool way because you still talk to everybody through your YouTube videos and through your blog. So um, it's cool that you were able to make it a platform where people talk to you because they want to, not because they're upset about something. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I try. I, I still do sell directly, too, but it's just a system where when we make something new, I announce it, I talk about it for a few weeks, and then we already have it. We've already made it. So there there's isn't that long buildup that I think can create some of those negative side effects. Yeah, and one of the really neat things about uh, Scythe in particular, I mean, you mentioned in one of your uh, posts that you had over 300,000 copies in print, so that alone is absolutely astounding. But you even had the chance to still use Kickstarter as a way to communicate to original backers. So you're able to go in there, and I think you had your last uh, update was in May of 2019. So those people that originally made it come to life still get that um, communication from you. So it's really cool that Kickstarter has a way to talk to people five years later and still support future uh, underwars or campaigns. That's pretty awesome. Oh yeah, I, I, I mean it's a it's a it's an amazing platform, and uh, I, I love that you are you're talking about it on your podcast, and I, I totally agree. I love that you can you can go back to backers from a long time ago, and not in like a pushy way. You can just be like, hey, I, you helped bring this to life. This doesn't exist. This wouldn't exist without you. Here's something new that we're making. If you want it, you can get it. If not, that's fine too. But just I use those posts almost as like just a thank you. It's, yeah. it's overwhelming to me that that uh, these things wouldn't wouldn't exist without people trusting that they might be cool. That's that's amazing to me. Yeah, it's uh, it's why I'm still in it two years later because it was a little daunting at first, but just there's a lot of uh, like you said, passion, there's support, there's engagement, 
a little bit of negativity here and there, but it's drastically outweighed by the, the positive support. As long as you communicate, you're transparent, uh-huh. and you're uh, delivering basically what you say you're going to deliver. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so uh, what could we expect to see from Stonemeyer Games in 2020, Jamie? I know you alluded to some playtesting for uh, Tapestry expansion. You had Wingspan European Edition come out not too long ago. Uh, what else is in store? Yeah, it's mostly, I think, going to be a year of expansions. So we have a, a My Little Scythe expansion, uh, a Tapestry expansion, and a Wingspan expansion, all in various stages of design development and production. Um, there, We usually release either one or two new games each year. I know for sure we will have one new game this year, and the second has some uncertainty around it right now, whether or not it will be ready in time. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the current plan for this year, and I'm I'm excited to see people see what people think of, of of the expansions and this new game. Yeah, it's it's it's. I know I'm not giving you. I'm being very vague here, but uh, <laughs> at least with that new game. But I'm I'm really excited to see what people think about about this stuff. Yeah. Oh, you, you have the right to be vague. I mean, you, you don't want to overpromise and then not give out what you what you're talking about. So I completely understand from a <laughs> perspective. Um, yeah. I, I had the opportunity I actually bought Wingspan for my wife for Christmas, and we have absolutely enjoyed that game. I know it was designed by Elizabeth, but you played a yeah. big hand in the development. I've listened to some podcasts that she's been on. Uh, so it's neat that you can not only design and develop your own fantastic games, but you're able to kind of lift up other creators and bring them to your platform and i thought that was just amazing in the top 10 of the board game geek it's won awards uh so very cool that you're developing different expansion support to keep that game alive thank you yeah i'm, I'm glad that you and your wife have enjoyed it and uh i think you said it perfectly that uh yeah it's it's meant a lot like it, that's one of my favorite things about being able to run this company for uh, doing that not for elizabeth because the game the game exists because of Elizabeth, but it feels good to to lift her or be a part of lifting her up. I don't want to sound like I'm the one only doing it. <laughs> she's doing most of it, and I'm giving her a little nudge based on my platform. But the same with yeah. uh, Jakob Rosalski of, of Scythe. Like, he was relatively unknown, and now I think he's known very well within the game community. Uh, yeah, that that feels awesome to me to to bring to life other people's dreams, especially if they're bringing people joy like you and your wife at, at your game table. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me again today, Jamie. I, I hope that your Kickstarter journeys, even though they were five years ago, but Stonemeyer Games was built on a foundation of Kickstarter. So I hope that the discussion about them helps continue to inspire and educate some of the other creators out there to keep working at and making their ideas turn into reality. And for those of you that are listening to the podcast, if there's one thing you can do to encourage it and motivate other Kickstarter journeys like Jamie and I actually talked about, just take a minute and a dollar or two, support a project that catches your eye or that shows interest. And though we may not be able to buy or fit all the games that we like into our mm-hmm. houses, we can still help them people out. Uh, any last words, Jamie? Um, just thanks for thanks for creating this. I, I, I honestly wasn't didn't know about this podcast until you reached out to me, but I, I love what you're creating. I, I think it fills a, a great spot that uh, that funding the dream used to fill until Richard Bliss uh, stopped doing it. So I look forward to to, to following this for, for hopefully a long time to come if you keep making it. So thank you for, for inviting me and thank you for, for making this podcast. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Richard Bliss because I was on his show twice and he kind of nudged me in the direction of fulfilling my Kickstarter, kind of learning some ways. And you were helpful in some of the emails back and forth. 
But uh, Funding the Dream was, he had so many fantastic episodes, and I know he left it saying that he felt he's done all he could do for his podcast, but there's so many new creators with new ideas and creators that created years ago, like yourself, that uh, still have so much to offer. So uh, I big shoes to fill, and uh, I don't know how long or how much of those shoes I can fill, but I'll, I'll keep <laughs> doing my best to find some uh, great interviews like yourself to share your knowledge. So uh, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. And again, for anybody listening, feel free to subscribe or follow. Continue to hear other Kickstarter journeys. There's some more great people lined up that want to share their stories with you and uh, always give feedback. Thanks very much, everybody.